So today we're going to be continuing in our series. We've been looking at various biblical figures and drawing forth lessons from their lives. We're going to continue with that, and today we're going to be looking at David. Certainly, if you think of David, there are lots of lessons we could be learning from his life. Uh, but today, the lesson we're going to particularly focus on as we look at 2 Samuel, you can take out your Bibles, turn there, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verses 1 through 27. But as we look at this passage, the lesson we're really going to learn from, from David's life here uh, is that sin snowballs. That is sort of sin has a way of begetting and leading to further sin and just sort of spiraling out of control. We're going to see that in this passage in, in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 11. It's probably a passage that, that's quite familiar to you, pretty well known. And again, what we're going to see here as we read and just sort of have this in your mind as we go through this passage, seeing sin leading to further sin and further sin and further sin, especially here as we look at in the case of David. So let's read Second Samuel chapter 11, starting at verse 1. It says, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. So I want to pause here, and already we sort of see David doing not what he ought to do. You might look at it and say, oh, it's not like the biggest deal. But in a sense, he's sort of sinning here by not fully carrying out the role and responsibility of, of king, being the king of Israel. We might think sort of in today's, today's day and age, you might think, you know, well, the leader of the country, whether king or president, will, you know, don't go off to war and be on the front lines and, you know, in, on the battlefield, but just sort of send off your generals, let them do their thing, and you can sort of stay way safe back in, you know, for, for David in Jerusalem. But if you think of in that day and age, in that culture, just in the ancient world, it was sort of the role of kings. This was part of his role, what would have been expected of him, what he should have done in service to the Lord uh, as king of the Lord's people. He should have been out there, you know, with his army, with his people on the battlefield. It doesn't mean he had to be like right on the front lines in the most dangerous position, but he should have been there with, with his army. That's what, what kings did. That's even what it says in the spring at the time when kings go off to war. Well, where was David? Well, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But of course, David remained in Jerusalem, as it says. And so he, he's here not carrying out his kingly role, not being faithful to it in fall, getting maybe a little bit lazy, just like it a little cushier, a little more comfortable in, in Jerusalem than out, you know, in a tent, on the battlefield, way out there. And so again, sort of might seem like a little bit of a small thing, uh, but nonetheless still sinning and not fully carrying out the role that he ought to be carrying out as king. And so we're going to see this continue to spiral, sin sort of leading to more sin, the fact that he's still hanging out here in Jerusalem rather than being where he should with his men. You know, the fact that he's here in Jerusalem gives occasion for this further sin that, as we're going to see, continues and continues and snowballs. So as we read on verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. 
Right, so again, let, let's just sort of look at what's happened here again, sort of with, with the particular emphasis on sin snowballing, kind of leading to more sin, spiraling out of control. So again, it sort of starts with what might seem like a little thing. David's kind of a little bit lazy in his role as king, not being faithful to it, not out with his men, but rather back in Jerusalem. That then gives the occasion sort of for further sin. You know, he's just sort of hanging around and he happens to see this woman bathing, right? And you can sort of fill in the gaps, even if this wording isn't quite there. He sort of sees her. He likes what he sees. It says she's very beautiful. And he begins to lust after her, right? At this point, he's just sort of like nip it in the bud and be like, oh, I shouldn't have those thoughts. I, I know where this is leading. Nowhere, nowhere good. Nip that sin in the bud. I got to get out of here, get out of this situation. But he doesn't, you know, he sort of continues on with this. I, I like what I see, you know, she's beautiful. I'm sort of lusting after her. I, you know, I'm the king. I can do whatever I want. You know, you can imagine him sort of thinking that. So, you know, no one will know. No one will be any wiser about it. So, hey, send for her. Go and get her. Bring her to me. And, of course, that's what happens. And he sleeps with her. So now he's committing adultery, right? Again, it sort of starts small, but one thing leads to another, leads to another. And now he's committing adultery, right? And not only is he committing adultery, though, though that's, that's grievous of its own accord, but, but even sort of the, the nature of it is sort of a, a type of kind of backstabbing adultery. You might sort of think of Uriah and be like, who knows who Uriah the Hittite is? We just know of him because of this story. But, but Uriah was like a big deal in, in David's army, in his military. He was one of David's 30 mighty men. Like he was sort of this, this great warrior in, in David's army, one of his chief officers. You'd think like, hey, if this is one of your mighty men who's fighting for you, winning battles for you, one of your, your leading officers in your army, like be a good friend. Don't sleep with his wife. Right, so he's committing adultery, but sort of in this like betrayal sort of way of his his great servant here, Uriah, one of his mighty men, sort of stabbing him in the back in a sense, sleeping with Uriah's wife. Right, and then of course she winds up pregnant. Right now, David's thinking, I've got a pretty big problem on my hands. Right, Uriah's off, you know, on the battlefield. He's not here, so he's gonna know like this wasn't from him. He didn't impregnate his wife. So David's got a problem here. And even just to sort of further clarify this and make it abundantly clear, right? It's not sort of randomly stated here. It says she came to him, speaking of Bathsheba, and he slept with her. And then we get this note: she had purified herself from her uncleanness. That might seem like eh, just a random detail thrown in there, but there's significance to that. Uh, what's being said here is she just had her period, and now as prescribed by the Old Testament law, she did the appropriate ritual purification. That's why she was bathing. It wasn't just sort of like a regular old bath, like I just like soaking in a tub and want to get clean. This was ritual purification. And the statement being made is she just had her period. She wasn't already pregnant. There's no chance, zero chance that, you know, well, we don't really know how long Uriah's been on the battlefield, but what if it hasn't been too long? You know, maybe she was already pregnant and just didn't know about it here. There's no room for that. It's like she just had her period and now did the appropriate ritual purification. So clearly she was not pregnant. You can't sort of spin it that way. She was already pregnant and it goes back to Uriah. He's really the father. No, no, no. She just had her period. She was not pregnant. No doubt about it. This is a result of what David has done. Again, so now David has a problem. And again, so we've already seen at this point sort of like a little sin, but getting more sin and more and more and more sort of, it's already spiraled out of control, right? He's committed adultery, but we're going to see things continue to get worse, right? And it begets more and more and more sin as he seeks to cover up what he has done. 
right? So David's got a problem. He's, he's thinking, how do, how do I fix this? How do I solve this? He's thinking, you know, really the best solution is if I can kind of get Uriah to sleep with his wife. He'll think it's his kid, problem solved, right? So, so that's what he sets about doing. So verse six, pick up, picking up where we left off. So David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And washing your feet, that, that's a euphemism for, for sleep with your wife. Uh, he's not just saying wash your feet with water. That was sort of, uh, in, in Hebrew, in the ancient Near East, that was sort of a, a euphemism for sexual intercourse. He's saying sleep with, with your wife. Hey, you know, you've been on the battlefield for a long time. You know, you're back home now. You sort of expect, if he's a typical guy, what might be near the top of his sort of to-do list, like, I'm home, I get to be with my wife, why not enjoy that? Um, so that, that's, this is David's scheme here. And again, even thinking of sort of sin snowballing, we have David here, you know, sort of manipulatively in a conniving way, trying to cover up what he's doing. This isn't sort of upright, honest, righteous action. He, he's sitting here in his manipulative, conniving, trying to cover up uh, uh, what he's done by having Uriah sleep with, with his wife Bathsheba, right? So he says, go down to your house, this euphemism, wash your feet, sleep with your wife. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my master Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house and eat, how could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Right? You can't help but sort of applaud Uriah here. Like if you were in the army, in the military, that's the type of commander you'd want. He's sort of like, my men are over there. They're all intense. They don't get to be with their wives. They don't get to go home and sort of sleep in a nice, comfortable place and whatnot. They're out in the open, out in tents. You know, and so I'm not going to get this special treatment. You know, if that's what they, they have, I'm not going to, you know, entertain this special treatment, get to go to my home, get to sleep with my wife. No, no, I'm not going to do that. So David figures now I've, I've really got a problem. I thought I had this solved. I figured, come on, you're right. He's going to go home. He'll sleep with his wife. Problem solved. Right. But but that doesn't work out. So now, again, David's continuing to sort of scheme, manipulate. Can I how can I fix this situation? Well, you know, what if I get him drunk? Right. Surely that will solve it. If I just get him drunk, then he'll do what I want. Right. So verse 12, then David said to him, stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. Again, continuing to see the sin just sort of spiral. Now David's getting people drunk, a sinful thing, encouraging drunkenness, getting people drunk, right? It continues to spiral, right? So David made him drunk, but in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home, right? Even drunk, sort of like, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to take this preferential special treatment while all the soldiers are out on the battlefield. Not going to do that. So now David's really got a problem on his hands, sort of figures I'm just, I'm not gonna get Uriah to sleep with his wife. Big problem here. What am I left with to solve my problem, right? And so you're probably familiar with the story and know how it continues on. We'll, we'll continue reading here. Verse 14, 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, when you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up and he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerubbesheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died in Thebes? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out, and when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had sent him to say. The messenger said to David, the men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Right? So, again, kind of thinking of the, the whole narrative here and the progression, let's sort of start at, at the beginning. Again, sort of starts with maybe a little sin here. It may not seem so big, but we continue to see it spiral out of control, right? David's sort of not faithfully carrying out the role of king as he should. He's not there with his men on the battlefield as he ought to, kind of taking it easy, just sort of wanting it cozy, cushy back in Jerusalem. So he's sitting there. That creates the scenario where then he sees Bathsheba. He sees her, lusts after her. But again, it doesn't end there. But, but the lusting leads to, well, hey, bring her to me. I want to sleep with her. So he sleeps with her, commits adultery. Right now he's got this problem on his hands because she's pregnant. So he starts, you know, conniving and planning. How do I put this, this plan together, manipulate things, right? In sort of this, this twisted, evil, sinful way. So he has Uriah come back, tries to get him to sleep with Bathsheba, gets him drunk. Again, you know, further sinning, getting people drunk. That doesn't work. Uriah doesn't wind up sleeping uh, with Bathsheba. So now David's like, what do I have left? Well, sort of murder by another, another's sword, in effect, is what he has left. So he says, you know what, I need your eye dead. I'm not going to like murder him myself, get my hands dirty. But, but murder would be an appropriate word, sort of put your eye in the front lines, right? Press the attack in sort of an unwise way, you know, and then yeah, put him where the fighting's the worst. He'll get struck down and, and killed and so forth. Problem solved, right? And so he effectively murders Uriah to cover up this sin. Again, seeing this sin just continue to snowball till it reaches the point of murder to cover up what he's done. And not only has he murdered Uriah, but if you think about it, it makes reference to the fact that some of the king's soldiers and and have died as a result of this. It's not just Uriah who's like the only guy there on the front lines who winds up killed as a result of this, right? You can't just send, just send your eye in solo. Everyone will wonder what's going on. No, right? Others around him are also killed as well. And this attack, right, was clearly an unwise attack. 
We see that uh, here in, in the context of what, what's written and what's said here, right? They have the city under siege. The appropriate logical thing would be either you sort of wait things out, you have them besieged. It's not like they're, they're getting food in. They may even have limited water supply. They might have a spring in there that they have access to, but certainly limited food. Often you can just wait it out, surround them. Nobody comes in, nobody goes out until they starve or they're greatly weakened as they begin to starve. Then you can attack. Or you surround the city and maybe you start to build siege works and a ramp up, up to the wall, that sort of thing. You don't just sort of press the attack up against the wall so that they can you know, start shooting arrows down, throw heavy things down on top of you. No, no general would do that. No commander of an army, no king would do that. This was sort of a, a foolish attack from the get-go that was only done just to kill Uriah, right? And so really, in effect, the collateral damage here is all on David's hands. It, it belongs to him, right? He's in effect sort of by extension murdered others as well. You know, if you sort of targeted one person, you know, imagine today's day you planted a bomb and you were targeting one person and a bunch of other people were sort of collateral damage and they died. Well, you've murdered them as well. That's effectively what David has done, not just murdered Uriah, but then all the collateral damage from this foolish attack that never would have happened, right? If not for Uriah and David trying to get rid of him, their, their blood sort of on David's hands as well. And by extension, he's in a sense sort of murdered them as well. Right? And so we continue to see here, as we look at the story, this sin just sort of snowballing, growing, getting worse and worse. Sin begets more sin. Right? And you could look and say, well, you know, like, is this just sort of one story where that happens? You look at the life of David here, this particular story with Bathsheba, and it's like, yeah, that's what happens here, but it's sort of a one-off thing. But, but that's, that's not the reality. This is really a pattern of how things operate in regard to sin. Sin naturally begets more and more and more sin. It has a tendency to sort of snowball, grow and grow, spiral out of control uh, in, in various ways. It can be uh, sin spiraling out of control as you attempt to cover up sin that you've done. That's sort of central here in what David's doing. He's done something. He's committed adultery. Now Bathsheba's pregnant, so hey, I have to cover it up. So you're trying to cover up this prior sin, and you wind up sinning more and more and more to try to cover that up. You can think of situations, might seem sort of like smaller things, but nonetheless sin. You could probably think of maybe even instances in your life or, or, or the life of somebody you know where maybe it started with, well, you know, you tell a little white lie. Maybe somebody wants to get together for dinner or something, and maybe you're just tired, or maybe like you like them, but you don't want to spend that much time with them. So you figure, I don't want to hurt their feelings, though. I'll come up with, it's just a little white lie. I'll say that, you know, we're away for the weekend or something like that, and then we don't have to get together. And you think, you know, that's it, one little white lie, which isn't just a little white lie. It's lying. It's sin. It's a big deal. But often that's how we sort of rationalize it and justify it in our own minds. You know, so you tell that lie and you think, okay, it's all done. It's over with. You know, the weekend goes by, you're now into next week, and you bump into that person, and they're like, oh, how was your weekend away? You said you were going up to New Hampshire or something, you know, for the weekend. How was it? And now sort of you just start spitting out more and more lies to cover up the first lie, right? You're sort of covering up the prior sin, the prior wrongdoing that you've done, and you start spinning more tales to cover up the first lie, right? You can think of instances like that or in other ways in which we continue to sin. It snowballs because we're trying to cover up the first sin that we committed. Uh, sin can also snowball and sort of spiral out of control uh, in, in other ways as well. The reality is, in regard to just sort of our, our sinful, fleshly nature, uh, when we get a taste of sin, often we just want and crave more and more of it. Uh, that's just sort of the, the reality. You can think of 
the, the truth is pornography is a huge issue in our country, in our world today. That's just sort of a reality even within the church. It makes for a good example of this type of way in which sin can sort of snowball and spiral out of, out of control and beget more and more sin, right? Uh, you sort of maybe get a little taste, our sinful fleshly selves. Maybe you're just watching TV and one of those ads comes up, you know, it's Victoria's Secret or you name it, scantily clad women in it, that sort of thing. And, you know, oh, you're like David and you're sort of like, I like what I see. I'm enjoying that. The, the lust begins. And, you know, maybe then you want a little more. So you hop on your computer and, you know, let me look at some pics there. And maybe it's, it's outright pornography, naked pictures. But then, you know, hey, that's not enough. And you want more and more of that. And then it's videos and becomes more and more extreme and twisted and so forth. That, that's, that's not an uncommon story or narrative for people who really struggle with pornography. You know, your sinful fleshly self gets a little taste of it. And then you want more and more and more and more of it. That, that's just a reality. Sin begets more sin. Often when you get a little taste of sin, you want more and more of it. Just to use a, a, another example along those lines, uh, we could use the example of drug addiction. Maybe it started way back in high school. You know, this could be a story for, for lots of people. And, you know, it was just alcohol to begin with. You know, you were hanging out with some friends, partying, people were drinking, you had a few drinks, and a few drinks led to a few more, and you got drunk, you sort of enjoyed it. And again, you got a taste of that sin and you want a little more of it. So you drink more and more regularly, get drunk all the time, then maybe that's not enough. And hey, let me try some other drugs. And it's marijuana, then it's cocaine or heroin, fentanyl, you, you name it. Again, when our sinful fleshly self gets a taste of sin, often we want more of it. And so it spirals and, and snowballs. Uh, also, th the reality is oftentimes we can sin, think of just the snowballing effect of sin, sin beginning more sin. Uh, sometimes we'll sin just to feed some other sin. Drug addiction makes a great example of that, to, to use that example again. Uh, if you have a drug addiction, often you, will, often you will sin in all sorts of other ways to feed that addiction. You'll, you'll lie, right? Oftentimes those who are addicted become compulsive liars. They're trying to cover up what they're doing. Uh, oftentimes it will lead to all sorts of theft and stealing. You want to feed your addiction. You got to buy your drug, whatever your drug of choice is. You can't hold a job because... You know, you're a drug addict and they find out and you get fired. So where are you going to find your money? Well, maybe you rob someplace. Maybe you steal some money out of a family member's wallet. These are, you know, I'm not like making this up. These are common stories for those who struggle with drug addiction, right? And so what you see is oftentimes to feed one sort of sinful habit, you wind up sinning in all sorts of other ways as well. And so sin just in all sorts of different ways naturally leads to more and more and more and more sin. We see this in David's life. It starts small and again, it just sort of takes off and snowballs and spirals out of control. And we see it in our own lives and the lives of others. Sin naturally leads to more and more and more sin. And so what's our, our takeaway here as we sort of look at the life of David here uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11 as we learn from him. Hopefully we do learn a lesson from his mistakes here. And sort of what, what is in effect our, our takeaway? It starts with understanding that reality that sin does in fact snowball. Sin does naturally lead to more and more and more sin. But then going further than that is to say this is really our, our takeaway and our challenge is whenever any sort of sin or a temptation arises in our lives, we should just say no to it from the outset. 
right? All too often you can say, it's just a little thing. It's just a little white lie. It's just this. In, in reality, no sin is just a little sin. It's sin. It's a big deal. It's, it's rebellion against God. It's disobeying his commands. But oftentimes maybe we try to minimize it. It's just a little thing. But we need to realize it's not just a little thing. It is sin. But also it can lead to all sorts of further sin. And so when that temptation arises, when we're sort of confronted with, with, with sin or the possibility or option to sin, we should just say no from the outset, knowing it very likely isn't going to be just that one sin, but it's going to lead to more and more and more sin in our lives. But, but also there's the reality of this already sin in our lives and also as, as opportunities to sin come before us in life, we're going to mess up at times. We're not always going to say no. We know we're not perfect. We're broken. We're, we're, we're fallen. Uh, we're going to mess up at times. And, and when we do mess up or where there's already sin in our lives, I want us to have this, this takeaway and application, which is to nip it in the bud right? Get rid of it. Be rid of it early on. Don't let it become like, like David did, you know, spiraling out of control. When he was in that situation, he's up there, right? And he's looking at Bathsheba and liking what he's seeing. He could have nipped that sin in the bud and said, you know, I know myself. I, I like women and, and, and maybe in a way that's not unhealthy, you know, uh, that's not the healthiest. I, I naturally lust, you know, he, he should have known himself and said, I'm, I'm just, I got to get out of this situation. I got to take myself out of this. I know it's not going to lead anywhere, anywhere good. Um, and he could have nipped it in the bud rather than sort of going further and saying, you know, I like what I see. I'm enjoying this. I'm lusting after her. Let's just sort of dive headfirst into this sin and sleep with her, commit adultery, he spirals out of control. And before you know it, he's committing murder as well, right? As we see sin in our lives, let's nip it in the bud, right? Uh, uh, say no before it even begins. That's the best. Before it even begins, say no to it before, it has, before that first sin, before any spiraling out of control of sin. But there is going to be sin in our lives. And as we see it, let's be wise. Let's learn from David and say, we got to nip it in the bud and be rid of it. Just turn from that sin, say no more, repent of it, and don't let it go any further. Don't let it spiral out of control. And if we do that, if we say no to sin from the outset or where it's already present in our lives, if we nip it in the bud, uh, we're going to live lives that are all the more faithful and obedient to the Lord. We're going to honor and glorify him all the more in our lives. So let's do that and let's learn from David and his mistakes. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, for this, this story from Scripture, though certainly sad that it did happen and, and take place this way, yet it's a great lesson for us on the nature of sin, that it just naturally has a tendency to grow and grow and spiral out of control. One sin leads to another and leads to another. We see that in David's life here. We, we see it in our lives and the lives of people we know all over the place, Lord. And, and may we recognize that reality, that, that sin does beget more and more sin in our lives. May we understand that and, and in that understanding, Lord, just first of all, say no to sin right at the outset, not even begin to give it a foothold in any way. May we wisely do that. But where maybe sin has already taken a bit of a foothold in our lives, may we not uh, continue with it any further, but rather nip it in the bud and say no to any further sin. Be rid of that, turn from it, repent of it, Lord, and turn toward you, that we might truly live out lives that all the more honor you and glorify you, that we might live out more obedient lives, Lord, faithfully unto you for your glory. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.